The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 10. It's one of those chapters in your Bible that if you're reading through, you might just kind of skip over or you stumble through trying to read all of the names that are very uncommon today. And you might wonder, what is the significance of this chapter? Well, I want to propose to you, it's probably one of the most significant chapters in all of the Old Testament that that we have before us. Because in Genesis chapter 10, we see, as I've entitled the message this morning, that it is a hope for the nations. That in chapter 10 of Genesis, we see that, that God has instilled in his preservation of the promise that he had made to Adam and Eve, that God would preserve that promise through the nations that, that would come out of this chapter. We see that there's really kind of a family legacy, if you will, in this chapter. It might be, how many of you still have an old family Bible, maybe that has been passed down? And it used to be tradition that in the old family Bible, all of the generations would be listed in that, and you can go back in it before there were the internet means of searching out your ancestry. It would be contained in all of the old Bibles that the family had passed down. Well, really, that's kind of what we see as a family legacy that he outlines for us. When you begin to read through Genesis chapter 10, it seems like it's an extremely exotic, just verbal map. Three times, though, there's, there's a key phrase that's made in Genesis chapter 10 that's made in reference to the three sons of Noah, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. And here it says this, that their clans, from, from them, their clans, their language, their lands, and their nations. It's a mishmash when you begin to look at it and trace through all the genealogies of, this, of the names. And I'm not going to take time to do that with you this morning. It might bore you to death. But what we summate in all of this is that from these three men, the sons of Noah, that we get all of our ethnicities, all of our linguistics, all of our geographical and political designations from all of that time on. From these three men, different ethnicities, different nations or people groups, different clans, different languages different places that they would go and settle as God had commanded, go and subdue the earth where we see that they would have migrated to. And from that, we have all of the different geopolitical systems and structures that had come about. It's kind of interesting when you read Canaan's descendants. Remember, he was the son of Ham who Noah had cursed when he had gone in and looked upon his father's nakedness. It's kind of like an entomologist's list for pest control. Names like the Hivites, the Archites, Sinites, Termites. You see, God had repeated to Noah, after he had come off of the ark, where God had preserved them, the same command that he had given to Adam and Eve in the garden after he had created them. 
And he gave him the command to be fruitful and fill the earth. We find in Genesis chapter 10 that it declares the interrelatedness of all peoples. In other words, we all have the same ancestry. We can all track it right back to there and even further. And and all of mankind has the same ancestry, whether it's red, yellow, black, white, brown, pink hair, purple hair, it doesn't matter that all of us share the dual paternity of both Adam and Noah. Now, we're going to see the significance in this in just a minute. But let me say this, all of our DNA comes from the same source. If we were able to track it all the way through and all the way back, your DNA and my DNA has the registry of Adam and also in it the registry of one of Noah's sons that are there. It declares that all people derive their existence from a life-living God and secondly, that we are all responsible to this God who has created us in His image. Paul, when he's speaking to those in Athens, as he's there on, on the Mount Mars there, and he's, and he's talking to him, he says this in Acts chapter 17, verses 26 to 28. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we move and we have our being, for we are indeed His offspring. Now, the interesting thing that we find as we read Genesis chapter 10 is that while it's true that that all nations derive their existence or their lineage from, uh, from these three sons of Noah by their ancestry, we are still all responsible to the same Creator, God. Man does not want to be accountable to a Creator. You see, that's why if we do away with the idea of God that somehow we just all emerged out of this morphic uh, conglomerate bubble where lightning struck it and we kind of evolved into the place that we are today and we discount God, men love that because why? Where there's a creator that we are responsible to, there comes accountability, and none of us likes accountability. Can you say amen to that? Recognizing there's one creator God who has created man in his own image, and God has preserved that lineage throughout all of history, tells us that we are accountable and we're responsible to one God. 
We see in this account in Genesis chapter 10, again, that they're, they're divided by geography and ethnicity and language and culture and government. And the greatest thing that divides them while they are all united under this one umbrella of ancestry, the thing that so greatly divides them and divides us is that one thing, that one thing that we call sin. Would you agree with me today that we are living in an incredibly divided culture? Not only in our nation, and when you look at these different instances, while we see the same thing repeated that was in Genesis chapter 10 as we continue to read on, while there was a division that came about, their languages were confused, we'll see in Genesis chapter 11, but not only were their language confused, but as they went out from there, they began to develop different cultural identities. They, they began to, through a process of, quite frankly, microevolution, and don't get concerned about that. We know that microevolution happens, changes within species, not across species as, as in macroevolution. You understand what I'm saying? But the concentration of, D, of DNA came about different ethnicities that we unfairly term race today. So in that, these different cultures developed, these different ethnicities developed, languages were different as they were confused, and in some of these places, geopolitical government structures began to come in place, and we see the same thing today, the same issue and problems that we see occur in Genesis chapter 10 and on that we have today, that we are all so divided by these things just as they were in those days. And as Solomon said, there is absolutely nothing new under the sun. But the common denominator in all of that division is that one thing we also share in common, and that is the sin nature that has been passed down to us through our father, Adam. Well, everybody acknowledge this morning, woe is me, I am a dirty, rotten sinner. Some of you didn't put your hands up. There we go. Now, Here's the big question. While in in some way we have this common denominator of unity in our DNA and our ancestry, what is the answer to all of the division that we see here and that we see today? And the answer is only one conclusive response, and that is through the person of Jesus Christ. You see, it's the promise that was given to Eve after she and Adam had sinned against God in the garden. And it's recorded for us in verse 16 where God says this to Eve. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman speaking to the serpent and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking of the Messiah that would come. And for the rest of Scripture, really, what we see is God's preservation of that promise that He made to Adam and Eve in the garden. 
that Adam and Eve, while you are separated from one another now as a result of your sin, and you are you will live in enmity and strife with one another, you are also separated from me in relationship by that same sin, and you will be enemies of God if there's not a provision that's made for your sin so that you might be in relationship to me. And throughout the whole of Scripture from that point on, what we see is God's progressive revelation of how He is going to fulfill that promise that He gave to Eve there so that you and I might have relationship to God. And I find it amazing as I read through Scripture and particularly as I dug in and mined the ground of Genesis chapter 10, how God so miraculously provided a way and a provision so that he might hold to that promise that he made to Eve. You see, God at that point could have made the decision, they've sinned against me, so I'm going to wipe them out now. And if he had done that, they would have been in all of eternity hopeless without any means of the obsolescence of their sin where they had sinned against God. We see that also unfold in the story of Noah and the ark as we've just looked at. Had God chosen at that time to wipe out all of the face of the earth because we find that Noah was blameless in God's eyes, but Noah was not perfect. Like I said a couple of weeks ago, there was only one that, per- that was perfect. None of the rest of us are, so get over it. Amen. Had God not chosen to preserve that, then all before Noah would have been lost in an eternal state of damnation, separated from God without any hope of salvation and eternity. And had God not continued that provision to send Christ as Messiah through that line, you and I still would be hopelessly lost in our sin. Now, one thing I want us to see this morning, if I can muddle through this chapter, can I tell you, teaching a chapter on genealogy is not a simple matter. (laughs) The hardest thing is going to try to keep you engaged. But I want you to follow this story a little bit and see how incredibly sovereign God is in preserving the promise that He had made to Adam and Eve for His glory and for our benefit, and how when you stop and reflect and look at it, hopefully today when you leave, you will say, Oh my goodness, God, how great a salvation you have provided for me. You see, the, 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 the decree, the promise that was given there to Adam and Eve, they, they understood and knew that from Eve's body, There had to be a seed from Adam that would bring about this hope promise of one who would crush the head of Satan and destroy sin. And what glory they may have felt when they were able to have the two sons, Cain and Abel. But we find in the story soon after that, Cain is jealous because his brother Abel offered a sacrifice to God that was more pleasing, not because of the type of sacrifice that it was, but the writer in Hebrews tells us that Abel offered his by faith where Cain offered his by flesh. You see, we cannot bring anything to God as a means of sacrifice and offering when it's in the flesh. It has to be by faith. 
Cain rises up and he kills his brother Abel. And can you imagine Eve and Noah and Eve and Adam as they had realized and known that that was God's promise, not only for the sins of the world, but for their own sin, that when Cain slew Abel, that perhaps that promise was thwarted. You see, the Bible tells us that God's promises are yes and amen. And that regardless of what man might do, regardless of what the enemy might do to try to thwart the promises of God, God is God and God will fulfill His plan, His will, and His promises. And God in His miraculous provision gives her another son, the son Seth. And as we followed Seth through, we realized that, that Seth, in a sense, was, if we'll use this term, Seth was the righteous line. And as Jude refers to Cain, he says that they had gone the way of Cain in wickedness. And we find it even in the next generation of Cain where wickedness was throughout that whole line. But God preserved a line through Seth. And as we fast forward, we see that through that line of Seth was this man, Noah. And he lived in that day where God said he looked and he said and he saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention and thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. And God said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and all creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made him, but, circle that word but in your Bible, but Noah found favor in God's eyes. And we see God's grace in this matter. But can I say this, that it wasn't for Noah and his family's benefit that God preserved him and his family. It was for your benefit and my benefit that God preserved Noah and his family because had he not preserved them, there would be no hope at all for any of us. From Noah, we get his three sons that are mentioned in Genesis chapter 9, and this whole table of generations that are mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, we have, we have Japheth, we have Shem, and we have Ham. Now, Ham, of course, was the one who had, who had looked upon his father, and, and Noah cursed his descendants, Canaan, which would always be the arch rival and enemies of the nation of Israel later as we see on. But through Shem, God preserved the line in the promise that he would soon call a man named Abraham, as we'll see here in Genesis chapter 12 as we get there in just a couple of weeks. And it was this man Abraham that we see in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, that God tells him and God gives him a promise. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and you and your families of all the earth shall be blessed. And so Noah, excuse me, God calls Abraham unto himself. And God gives Abraham a promise while he and Sarah were yet without children and old in age. God gives them a promise that he will 
bring about an heir, and through the heir all of the nations will be blessed, and he will have descendants far greater than he can number in the stars and on the sands of the earth. And his wife Sarah laughed. She said, how am I going to bear children? I'm past of that age, and so as time goes on, Sarah decides, I'm going to take matters into my own hands because Abraham is just not getting it done, and so I'm going to take my maidservant, and I'm going to give him to Abraham, and maybe through that, God will provide a promise, and we know the story there, that Abraham, at the pleading of his wife, has relations with the servant. And out from that comes Ishmael, but that was not God's plan. See, God's plan and provision was through the union of Abraham and Sarah that he would fulfill the promise that he had given long ago to Adam and Eve in the garden. I'm about to get in trouble. Guys, it's not always wise to listen to your wife. It was her plan, right? She got upset about her plan later, and Abraham was the one at fault, right? Of course, Abraham did bear the responsibility as well. A lot of time would pass between that time, and God would bless them with the son Isaac. And, of course, we remember the story of Isaac, how he was God's blessing, a blessing to Abraham, and he was the promise of the fulfillment, and I'm going to remind us of the promise made to Adam and Eve in the garden. Abraham knew that Isaac was a promise, and there's a day that God comes to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son, your one and only son. Can you imagine what went through, what went through Abraham's mind? But this is the promise that you've given to me, and I understand that this is a promise that was given to Noah and, and uh, excuse me, Adam and Eve in the garden. How's it going to be? But Abraham, by faith, went to offer his son Isaac, and God miraculously at the last moment says, wait a minute, stop. And Abraham looks over, and there's a ram caught in the thicket, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. God preserved Isaac, and as the story goes on, we know that that Isaac goes back to his homeland as Abraham had commanded him to after he received the blessing, and he he marries this woman named Rebekah, and Rebekah for a long time went without children. She was barren. She prayed to God, and God not only blessed her with one, but he blessed her with two. He saw in Jacob twins. And kind of prophetically, we see that these two are going to strive with each other, twins. Because the Bible tells us that they wrestled in her womb as they were there. And as they were born, although Esau came out first and rightfully, he received the birthright being the firstborn and he was to receive the blessing of Isaac. But Jacob is holding on to his heel as they come out of the womb. These were two unlikely guys, in my opinion, to be a part of the lineage of the heritage of Messiah that was promised back in the Garden of Eden. 
when you read the story, we're going to look at the story more later. But, but Esau was really kind of a, a, a guy that was a very flesh-indulgent guy. And Jacob was a conniving little snake. Jacob was really the little brother, right? And, and Rebecca, she wasn't so pure in herself because she put Jacob up to some of the conniving that he did. Talk about a dysfunctional family. There it is. That's not a 20th century term, by the way. And Esau, being driven by the flesh, comes in one day from being hungry, and he says, I'm about to die. I'm about to starve to death. Likely he wasn't. And here his brother Jacob is eating a nice meal, and Esau says, give me some of your food. And and Jacob says, this is my opportunity. I want your birthright as a firstborn. And if you'll sell me your birthright for this cup of soup, then I'll give you this cup of soup. In parentheses, we always want instant gratification without ever considering the long-term consequences, don't we? And so Esau wants his belly full. He sells his brother his birthright, and now he has the birthright, so it kind of transfers to him, but that wasn't enough. He knew that he needed Isaac's blessing. And so with the help of his mother, the wife of Isaac, he deceives Isaac and comes in and makes himself up as Esau so that Isaac would lay hands on him and pray on him and pass along the birthright to him. Now, if I were God, I wouldn't select these two kind of guys as a means to bring about the promise that was given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, would you? In parentheses, There's hope for you and I because even in the lineage of Jesus, there are rotten, stinking sinners just like you and me. Can you say amen to that? But can I remind you that the promises of God are yes and amen? And no matter what circumstances might look like, no matter what things might change, no matter how much it seems the world may be falling apart or your world may be falling apart, God's plans and God's purposes cannot be thwarted by any action of man or sin known to mankind. Isn't that good? We know that Jacob goes on and he actually has two wives, Leah and Rebekah, which we'll get to later. But, but of those two wives, there are 12 sons that are born, one of them being Joseph. And we know the story of Joseph and his brothers, how that his brothers envied him because Jacob, quite frankly, loved Joseph more than he did the others, and he showed favor to Joseph, and and they were jealous of Joseph, and they wanted to kill him, but one of the brothers had mercy and said, no, let's sell him into slavery instead. And we, we know the story how Joseph goes as a slave into Egypt, and God brings him up to the most prominent position, second to the Pharaoh, to preserve not just his people, 
but the promise that he had made to Adam and Eve in the garden. Are you getting the thread here? While God chose a nation, the nation of Israel, to fulfill his purposes, the reason he did that was to fulfill the promise that was made to Adam and Eve in the garden, that there would be one that would come that would crush the head of the serpent and therefore defeating death and sin. Jacob has these 12 sons, and it's interesting, one of these sons, Judah, who God had said in Genesis chapter 49 would would be the one of all the sons that would carry the scepter on, and through his line would come Messiah. Judah was kind of a distorted character himself. You see, Judah had three sons that were given to him by, by his wife. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. How would you like to be named Ur? Or Onan? This first son, born son, Ur, though, was wicked in the sight of God, the Bible tells us. Now remember, the, the line of Judah was going to be where Messiah would come. And Ur is wicked in the sight of God, and God puts him to death. Firstborn, right? The other two brothers were told then that because Ur had been put to death and the seed could not be passed on, and in order to preserve that promise that had been given to Adam and Eve, then you're to go and marry Ur's wife, Tamar, so that there might be a heritage. And so the commandment was given, and the first one, Onan, disobeyed God. And so God put him to death because he would not carry on a seed through Tamar. Then the second one was given the opportunity, Shelah, and he also disobeyed God and wouldn't do it. Now, if I had been him, I would have taken a lesson from Onan, right? I was glad to be the last born because I saw my brother next to me make a lot of dumb decisions, and I saw the consequences in his life, so I learned to keep my actions hidden from my parents so I wouldn't be found out, right? You might think that the promise has ended there, but tomorrow, (laughs) she was a character in and of herself. Now, this will kind of make you squirm. I find it amazing. It's a side note. I find it amazing that, that God doesn't cover up stuff in Scripture. If I had been writing the script, some of these folks I would have left out. You know, there's some family members you just don't talk about, right? Yeah. God leaves it all out there. And I think the reason he leaves it out there is, number one, as Paul has said, so we can learn from them. But secondly, we see the sovereign hand of God that even in the midst of sin, God will fulfill his plans and his purposes. And so Tamar devises a plan. She knows she hasn't been 
She hasn't conceived, and, and I don't think in her mind, because she was a Canaanite, I don't think in her mind it was to preserve the line of the promised Messiah. I don't know what her motivation was, but she goes out and she dresses like a Canaanite prostitute, and she stands there on the corner, and when Jacob comes along, she entices him to go to sleep with her, to go to bed with her. And then she steals a couple of his articles from her. He gives them to her, and, 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 and later she's found to be pregnant. And she uses the articles that she had gotten from Jacob to blackmail him in the sense and saying, you're the one that is the father of the child that I'm bearing, and that would be Perez, who the direct descendant and line of Messiah is recorded in one of the Gospels as being in the lineage of Christ. Underline this. God preserved his promise. I'm going to fly through this. We see later in the history there of Israel how, as Joseph had come to prominence in Egypt, that God in his, his sovereignty... God had brought all of the family, all of the 12 sons back into Egypt because he had orchestrated or made means of a famine in the land. And it was there that God established and grew his people, the Hebrew people, his nation under captivity for 400 years in Egypt until later he would send a deliverer there. And the rest, they say, in the words of that great radio commentator, the rest is history. It was there in that last chapter of Genesis that as Joseph is confronting his brother, Judah being one of them, you see, they had feared that, that perhaps after Jacob had died that, that Joseph would take revenge out on them. And it was Joseph who made that monumental statement that, that we all hold on to because we question all of this of how can good come from evil? And Joseph says to them, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. The parallel of that is where Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, 28, that we know that all things work together for good in the lives of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. And if you can take all of that and break it down, while all the evil, all the chaos, all the confusion, all the division might take place, it will not thwart the will and plans of an almighty, sovereign God. So here's my encouragement to you through this story of genealogy. Is that no matter how confusing your world might seem, no matter how confusing this world might seem, no matter how confusing situations in this country might seem, God is God, and God will fulfill His promises and His plans. And just as the plan of His Son coming in the first incarnation where He would go to the cross and die and pay penalty for your sins and my sins, His plan and His promises that He's coming again and He's going to establish His kingdom just as the old promise was kept, God is going to bring it to pass.
I don't want to tell you to close your eyes to what's going on around us, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to open your eyes to the promises of God. That no matter what is taking place, it will not thwart the sovereign will and plan of God and the hope that we have as believers because He has first been raised from the dead, that if we die in this mess, we have the hope that we too shall be raised with Him for eternal glory forever and ever and ever, secure as the saints, preservation of the saints in His presence. Amen. Get your eyes off the things that the enemy wants to use to dash your faith, to dash your hope, to create bitterness and anger in your hearts as you lash out. Get it out and get your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Can I tell you this? That God has a plan for the nation of Israel, but there's only one other kingdom and there's one other nation that God has an eternal plan for, and that is the kingdom of God. And we have been called to be a part of the kingdom of God. We are citizens of heaven. And he has given us a mission in that. And all authority, Jesus said, has been given unto me, and I give it to you. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That's what he's called us to. I apologize that I get excited every now and then, and I get preachy on you. But I can't help it, folks, especially in times like this. We have to keep in mind the mission that he's called us to as the body of Christ because he desires that none should perish and all come to eternal life. Today, he is working in the church to fulfill his promises and his blessings and the fulfillment of what he's promised. Let's be about what he's called us to do. I close with this note in Psalm 67. You see... We have in Genesis chapter 2 the recording of the nations, the ethnos, the people groups. And God desires that, that on that day when we're around the throne, that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, people group will praise Him and worship Him. And for that reason, the psalmist writes in Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way be me known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Now, that's not geographic nations as we see on our maps. Those have changed throughout all of history. The lines have changed, right? He's talking about people, people groups, red, yellow, black, brown, and white, all tracing our lineage back to Noah and ultimately back to Adam, all created in his image and all purpose to have relationship with him. But the only way they can have that relationship is by receiving what God has provided for them because of their sin, his son Jesus. I want to encourage you today as you leave, the basket is out there of these cards. 
Every time somebody gives you something this week, give them a card. On the card is our website where we hope to engage them or bring them to that website so they can find more about the hope that they have in Christ. And if God would draw them, they'd be a part of our services either online or in person. But folks, that's the easiest way that I know that we can invite others so that they might come engage with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make sure you grab those when you leave today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.